0: Good morning Calvary. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 3 verse 13 through chapter 4 verse 7 and it can be found on page 808 in the Pew Bibles. the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil.
1: And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry,
0: and the tempter, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test.
1: The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Everyone, welcome to Calvary Memorial Church. My name is Joel Miles. I'm on staff here at Calvary, and it's my great privilege to be here to preach, to proclaim God's Word. We are continuing today in our Lenten series, uh, which is why we've kind of switched things up by the order of service is different, and we're doing the sermon so early. And we are looking at the temptations of Jesus. And today, in particular, we're focusing on Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. So each week, we're kind of adding the next portion of the text that we're looking at entirely over Lent. And today, we read more than this. It's just verses 4, sorry, verses 5 through 7, which is the second temptation that Jesus faces by the devil. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember how we looked at the beginning of chapter 4 and the first temptation where Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And we discussed the counterintuitive nature of that temptation. Because what it shows is that Jesus, this one who is beloved by God, as the end of chapter 3 says, that Jesus, the Son of God, is led into the wilderness to suffer. Even though he's loved by God, he's led to suffer for the purpose of the devil being able to tempt him. And what the devil tempts him to do is to stop, to stop suffering, saying, if you are the son of God, meaning if you are loved by God, if God cares about you, turn this stone into bread. In other words, stop the pain. Stop the suffering. Why? Because you are the son of God. Because you are loved by him. Which, in many ways, I think to us, seems to make sense. But you see, that's the lie. That's the lie that Satan wants Jesus and us to believe that God doesn't care about you because if he did, your life would look different. And in particular for us, we can know that this is a lie because Jesus went into the wilderness for us and it took him all the way until he was on the cross where he faced these same temptations again, where they actually cried out to him If you are the Son of God, come off the cross. Come down, and we will believe in you. But he was there for us. He was there for you. He was there to actually give us salvation. But Okay, this week, as we look at this second temptation, I want to press into this a little bit more. In many ways, because there's a lot of similarities between last week and this week. The temptation, there's a lot of similarities between the two of them. And honestly, I've been somewhat overwhelmed by the response to last week's sermon. Many of you have come up to me, have emailed me, have said how much that sermon meant to you and how much you needed to hear that. But I want us to think for a moment what that means. Because what it doesn't mean is, wow, what a sermon. I might be tempted to think that, but that would be a lie. (laughs) What it actually means is, wow, there must be a lot of people in this room who are in pain. There must be a lot of people here who need to be reminded that God loves them despite what they are going through. And if that's true for us, how much more true is that for us when we walk out these doors into our world? We are a people who are hurting in many ways. But I'm not sure if you would necessarily think that by just coming into our services, coming into this room, I feel like, in many ways, like most churches, many of us feel the need to hide our weaknesses, to hide our pain. And why? Because we're in church. We actually think that being here means that we need to kind of not show what we're going through, not show that we are struggling. But I want to ask the question today what are we, as God's people, God's sons and daughters, what are we supposed to do about our own suffering? And the suffering and pain that we see around us beyond trusting God. Yes, we're supposed to trust God, but beyond that. How are we as those who have been saved and loved by Jesus Christ through the cross? How are we called to respond to the suffering in our own lives and in the world? Yes, how is our identity as God's children meant to be manifested through how we respond to our suffering and the suffering of those around us? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. And I want to do that first by focusing on Jesus Christ and how what we see happening in this second temptation is that Jesus' very own identity as our Savior is revealed not through him avoiding pain, but through actually entering into our pain and suffering on the cross. But I won't want to just stop there. I don't want to just point out that Jesus shows himself truly who he is by suffering for us because there's a logic to that that shows how we, as God's people, God's sons and daughters, are called to respond to the suffering we see around us. And it's really twofold. On the one hand, it means that we should be a people who do not feel like we need to pretend like everything's okay. We should not feel like we need to pretend like everything's fine because we are here because another took our pain for us, had to suffer for us. But on the other hand, it should mean that we are people who intentionally seek to bear the pain and suffering of those around us on ourselves, who actually want to reach out and know what's going on so that we can take it for others, and in so doing, reveal who we are in Christ. And so what this means is that if last week was about showing you that when you face the pain of this world, you can know that you are loved by God because of what Christ has done for you on the cross... This week is about knowing that because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, we are able to expose our weakness and also join in seeking to bear the pain of others on ourselves. So that just as Jesus is truly revealed through the cross, we as a church are called to be people of the cross who are saved and loved by it, but also shaped and conformed to it. Okay? I'm going to pray first, then we can dive into the text where I try to show you these things. So let me pray. Father, I ask right now that your spirit would speak. Lord, for all the prep I did, it doesn't matter, God, unless you open up our eyes and our hearts to see the glories of what you have done in Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would do that right now. And do it in such a way, Lord, that we would not just look to Jesus and see what you have done for us individually but we'd see it so fully that it would enable us to actually curve out of ourselves and live for the sake of you and for the sake of others because we're so secure in what Christ has done. May you do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in our text, which again is Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7, we see that the devil is not yet satisfied, right? Jesus has rejected his first temptation, but the devil doesn't think that he's quite lost. And really, I know this sounds kind of weird to say, But I think you could argue that with what the devil does in the second temptation, that he kind of has a point. Okay, so in rejecting the, the devil's first temptation to stop suffering because he is the son of God, Jesus quotes from the Bible. And he says that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All right, so that's how Jesus rejects Satan's temptation to not suffer because he's the son of God. I don't live on bread alone. I don't live on the comforts of life. I don't live on these things. I live on God. I trust in him. I live on his word. But you see, the devil knows that this line of Jesus creates a bit of a problem. And that problem is that there are many promises in the Bible that seem to support the devil's claim concerning what it means to be God's son and suffering. Yes, there are many places in the scriptures that speak of God's love and care for us in such a way that it seems to be claiming that if we are faithful to God or God loves us, God will enable us to avoid pain and suffering. In fact, this is especially true as it concerns God's Messiah or God's chosen instrument for saving his people. What I mean is that while showing in the word of God, the word which Jesus claims to live on, that suffering is, in general is something we all need to endure and that this does not mean that God does not love us, Well, that's possible, what can be harder to do sometimes is to show that the one who has been sent to save us from this suffering, the Messiah, the Son of God, showing that that person will actually save us by suffering with us or for us, that can sometimes seem harder to prove. And in many ways, I think that makes intuitive sense. Like, if you are going to be saved out of your pain and suffering, then don't we need someone who's powerful enough to avoid such things? If we want salvation, we need someone who's different, who's above the fray, who's able to conquer the enemies that we succumb to. And the people of Jesus' day were looking for that person. And they were doing so because the Old Testament... Okay, in the Bible, leading up to the birth of Jesus, God promises that one day he will provide a savior. In fact, the promises of a savior begin all the way back in Genesis three, when sin enters into the world through the temptation of Satan, God promises that one day, one day someone will come who will crush the head of Satan, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will trample on the head of the adder, who will conquer the effects of sin. And the people of Jesus' day were looking for that very person. And they had assumptions of what he should look like. You see, that's important to have in our heads as we look at this second temptation. Because while Satan, as I said, does tempt Jesus in a bit of a similar way to the first time when he says, if you are the son of God, just like he does before, the temptation is different, not only because Satan offers biblical support for why Jesus should not suffer, but also because he's changed the setting. And in so doing, the devil has made the temptation not as much about Jesus avoiding suffering in general because he's loved by God, but rather made the temptation about proving Jesus is our Savior by showing he is powerful enough to avoid suffering. Okay, so look with me at verse 5. It says this, Then the devil took him to the holy city, And set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, why is this detail here? Why tell us that Jesus is no longer in the wilderness, but instead in Jerusalem at the pinnacle of the temple? It cannot just be that it offers Jesus a high point to jump off, because there's a lot of mountains in the wilderness of Israel. If the temptation is just to be, if you're the son of God, jump off to see if God will catch you since he's promised to do so, that could have taken place almost anywhere. So why here? Why take him to Jerusalem, to the pinnacle of the temple? It's because of how public it is. This is the center of all Jewish life. This is the center of Jerusalem. This is the top of the temple where everyone could see him. Because the devil is no longer just tempting Jesus with using his powers to not suffer because he's God's son and that's loved by God. He is tempting Jesus with using his powers to not suffer for the purpose of displaying his identity to the people of Israel as their savior. He's tempting Jesus with showing them that he's the one they've been looking for, that he is their savior. He's their long-for king who will crush the head of the serpent by displaying his ability to be saved from suffering. And the devil even tries to make it seem as if it's not really a temptation. This is just fulfilling scripture. So when he says here in verse six, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. When the devil says that, he's quoting from Psalm 91 from the very word that Jesus has just claimed he lives on. And so he's saying, okay, you live on the word of God. You claim that you are the son of God, he's gonna save the people of Israel and through Israel save the world and that as the son of God, you live on God's word? Well then prove it. Let's go to the most public place possible in front of the very people that you came to save, in front of the very people that you love and how about you show yourself to them? Prove to them who you are, that you are your savior by fulfilling Psalm 91 and so throwing yourself down and showing that even when suffering is threatened, you are powerful enough to avoid it. Okay, let me ask you this. What do you think would be wrong with Jesus doing something like this? And honestly, think about that for a moment. What would be wrong with Jesus doing this? I know it looks bad because it's the the devil's idea. So you're like, it's probably not what he should do. But wouldn't it make sense for Jesus to do something like this? Or at least something like this during his lifetime. In fact, why does Jesus so often seem to want to do the very opposite of reveal his identity to the world through using his powers? Like, have you ever noticed in the Gospels, mostly in Mark, But it happens in Matthew as well, that there are a number of times where Jesus tells his disciples or other people who have seen him do something amazing, such as heal someone, or maybe they confess who he is, or they see him transfigured, and Jesus then says, don't tell anyone about it. Don't let them know who I am. Don't tell them that I am the Christ. Why? Why does he do this? Why does he seem unwilling to display himself to the world in the way the devil is telling him to do this? Why is this even wrong? Part of the reason I think this can seem so difficult for us to answer is because if you go and read Psalm 91, the whole Psalm really could be read as if the devil's right. It's not just that he's like ripping these verses out of context and everything around it is about suffering it's even more elevated than what we even find in the verses that he quotes. And ironically, the verse in Psalm 91 that comes right after the one that Satan has quoted to Jesus says this, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Which means that this person spoken of in Psalm 91, is the one God will use to conquer his enemies, to crush the head of the serpent of the devil himself. So it actually seems that Satan is telling Jesus to publicly prove to the people that he is their savior who will defeat himself. Go show everyone that you're going to beat me. And we know that Jesus eventually does. So again, why not just do this? I want you to look at how Jesus responds to the devil in verse seven. So verse 7 says, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. All right, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that the problem with the devil's use of scripture is that by using it in the way that he does, he is choosing the way that God has to work in order to be considered faithful to it. The devil is responding to Jesus by saying, oh, you live on God's word? You trust in him? Well, then throw yourself down from here because he's promised to catch you. But Jesus is saying, no, he hasn't. That isn't trusting God. That is testing to see if God is faithful according to the criteria that you have made up. You have decided how Psalm 91 must be fulfilled. You have decided what God's Savior must look like, and you're calling on me to test God with whether or not He will treat me according to your vision of what it means to be God's chosen King. You see, that's a problem. Because trusting God includes actually trusting Him to show Himself to us, to reveal Himself to us and how He works. We don't get to demand that he look the way we assume he should look. And the devil is tempting Jesus with looking like the Savior that the people expected or wanted him to be, rather than being the Savior God had sent him to be. What kind of Savior do you want? What's your expectations for what Jesus should do for you? What do you think the Savior should look like? And why? The people of Jesus' day wanted exactly what Satan was tempting Jesus to be like. They wanted someone who was impressive, they wanted someone who was powerful. They were looking for someone who was different, someone they believed was described in Psalm 91 who would crush the head of the serpent, conquer their enemies through might not through suffering, but rather having the power of God to avoid it altogether. But why they wanted this kind of savior was for the very reasons we tend to follow anyone. We want to be like them. We want them to enable us to also follow in their footsteps. And so they wanted a powerful savior because he would himself enable them to not suffer because they believed that through him, their own suffering would be over. They would be saved to no longer live under the oppressive hand of Rome. They would have glory, and thus would not only not need to worry about their own suffering, but they also wouldn't need to worry about anyone else's pain. This person would get rid of it all. That's who they wanted. What about you? What do you actually want Jesus to be like? I know for myself that when I am honest, I usually feel exactly the same as Israel. I usually feel as if what I preached last night, is, last week, is not at all what I want to hear. If I was choosing what my Savior was going to look like, I wouldn't say, well, my Savior would love me in the midst of my suffering. I would say he would get rid of it. If I was choosing my savior and I read Psalm 23, I'd get rid of that middle section that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll feel no evil for you're with me. I'd say, we don't need that part. He'll just lead me to valleys of green pastures. He'll just be with me always, but I won't go through anything hard. In fact, this is so true for me, guys, that often when God leads me to care for someone else, I realize that I actually expected not to be hard because I'm following God's will. So many of you know this story, but a number of years ago, my wife and I expanded our family through foster care and adoption. And I am, I am so glad. I'm so glad that he did. Those children are an absolute gift. But part of the reason they are a gift, and there's so many things I could list, is because God used them to show me the cost of love and so the glories of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. You see, whenever I would explain to someone what I was doing before the kids joined our family, I'd point to Jesus and his work for us, how God through Christ adopted us and brought him into our family, and so I wanted to imitate this. I wanted to be like Jesus. But when I said those things, I really did not realize how much I was thinking of God and Jesus in this warped way. But I found out pretty quickly when things got hard. Because I realized very fast that if you really want to love someone, if you really want to love someone, the only way to actually do it is to be willing to take their pain on yourself. And when others have been through as much pain as they've been through, The only way to love them is to actually bear it. But when it started happening, I was confused. I was actually mad at God. How is something so good, something that's supposed to be loving and caring, why is it so hard? In those times, I was showing that I didn't understand the cross and the cost of God's love for us. You see, I wanted to be like Jesus, I wanted to be like my Savior. But which one? Which Savior? Because the kind of Savior who takes away my pain and enables me to love others by not having to bear their pain on myself, that is not who Jesus is. But guys, praise God it's not. Praise God, because if that's who he is, he wouldn't be our Savior. He actually would not be our Savior. Because think about it. Our world is full of self-proclaimed saviors who are like that. In fact, the history of our world is full of people who put themselves in the most public place possible in order to show off how remarkable they are and they call on us to follow them. And with the advent of social media, this has only gotten worse. We are inundated with people putting themselves forward to show their glory and offering to us that if we follow them, then we too can bask in their glory. Follow me and your life will be different. It'll be better. Employ my methods, and your church is guaranteed to grow, or you will be stronger, or skinnier, or smarter, or happier, or richer, or more organized. Yes, our world is full of these heroes who have sought to display to the world how they offer hope, because aren't they great? Aren't they amazing? Aren't they strong? And we follow them. We listen to their words. We watch their wonders, and we get in line to praise them because they are the leaders that we want. They offer us the world of Psalm 91, but without pain, without wilderness, without struggle, without the need to care for those around us, without the cross. And that is exactly the kind of savior Israel wanted in Jesus' day. And it's the kind of savior that we want. The ones who offer a better life without pain. They're following in the footsteps of their power. By actually, like, literally the ethic of our world right now, if you remember, Gerald talked about this a lot, the ethic of our world is curve in on yourself. Care about you. It's all about you. If someone's holding you back, get rid of them. You need to look at yourself and make sure you are okay. It's not to actually live for others. But Jesus absolutely refused to do that. Even though he could have even though he could have shown that he's the best form of that kind of savior and so gathered a massive following. He refused. Why? Because that is not the kind of savior God sent him to be. In fact, to live that way is not to be a savior at all. Because for each one of those saviors who has risen up throughout history and for each one today, the end is always the same. Every single self-proclaimed messiah Every single mass proclaimed savior. Every single time someone rises up to gather a huge following, the end is always the same. Death. It comes and takes them all. For every single one of those leaders, in the end, the serpent who through temptation brought death into the world, in the end, he stands over their grave. He crushes them. Because for all their power, for all their wonderful displays of magnificence, for all their talk of how you can take care of yourself, death keeps winning. It takes them all, and we follow them, we go down that same path. In the end, their true identity is exposed then. They're not the Messiah. They're not the Son of God. There is, however, one man whom death could not hold. There is one who rose on Easter Day to never taste death again. And it is that man whom God declared, that is my son. That is my Lord. It is that man who was truly revealed as the Savior, who has crushed the head of the serpent. And that man is Jesus Christ, the only one who was truly able to fulfill Psalm 91. But, and this is the paradox of Christianity, he was able to do it, not because he avoided pain and suffering, but because he was willing to follow God's will and take our sin, take our pain, take our suffering, take our death on himself and then bury it in the ground. You see, that's the point. Of course, of course Jesus could have done what the devil tempted him to do. He could have shown the world that he could avoid pain. But in doing so, while he would have gathered a massive following, he would not have offered us the hope of one day every tear being wiped away and death being no more. He would not have crushed the head of Satan. He would not have offered us the hope of Psalm 91. To do that, he had to die for us. And it's why when he comes back from the grave, he comes back with the scars on his hand because he is forever the crucified one. To become the resurrected one, he had to be the crucified one. It is through the cross, through death in our place, that he reveals to to us that he is our king, our savior, the son of God. It is through being the son of suffering that he is the son of God. It is only through Good Friday that we get Easter Sunday. You see, this is why Jesus often told his disciples, don't tell others about who I am after he'd done something powerful. Because for all the powerful acts that he did, thinking of him in light of those things, divorced from his death, before he'd been hung up for all to see, would have led to misunderstanding. You can only truly understand him through his death and resurrection. The only way to truly be the Messiah that God has sent him to be is through death. And so without the cross you won't get who Jesus actually is. You might know that he's the Messiah. You might be able to say that he is the Savior. But the categories you will use for explaining what those things mean are the exact categories the devil is tempting Jesus to use here. Be our Savior. Be our hope through avoiding the cross. But you can only truly understand what those words mean by seeing it through the lens of his death and resurrection. As Jesus is the Son of God, not because he can avoid suffering, but because he went through it for us and came out the other side. Yeah. He is the one who crushes the head of the serpent, not because he's powerful enough to avoid death, even though he could have, but because he's willing to follow God through death. But okay, we need to make sure we understand the implications of this for our lives, because this is scandalous. It's actually why if you ever go and read, which I'm not suggesting you do this, but if you ever wanted to, go and read the other Gospels, the Gnostic Gospels, what you will find in every single one of them, Jesus doesn't die. He doesn't go to the cross. We have been trying to erase this fact since he did it. Because what this means is that Jesus is the Savior that you need, but he's not the Savior you naturally want. He is the one we need because it is only through him that we are offered life, that we're offered hope, that we're offered the assurance of resurrection. Guys, all the other leaders and self-appointed messiahs claim to offer a better life now, but in the end, they fail. Jesus, however, offers you eternal and true life. He offers you the love of God through his death. He's the savior we need, but he's not the savior we naturally want. Because in saving us through the cross and resurrection... He calls on us, his people, to follow him down that same path. And you see, that is what God graciously, graciously helped me learn through my kids. He helped me actually learn that that's the path we must go down, the path that Christ did for us and that we are called to join him in. But surprisingly, what I found in actually learning that was not that I actually then lost my life. I had found it. I'd found the good life. So last week, I talked about Peter telling Jesus not to go to the cross because of Jesus' identity as the son of God. And how Jesus told Peter, get behind me because of what we're seeing here. Peter didn't get it. He didn't get what we're seeing in this passage, that to be the son of God means to suffer for us. It means to live for God and live for others no matter the cost. It means to be faithful to God by bearing the pain and burden of others on yourself because that's what it means to go to the cross. It's being faithful to God by loving us so fully that our sin, pain, and suffering is carried by him. But what is important to remember is that Jesus does not just rebuke Peter and say, that's what I have to do. He actually says to him, that's what you have to do too, Peter. It's you and all who would follow me. They have to take up their cross and follow me. Yes, all of us because we have been saved by Jesus, let's take up our cross and follow him. But what is so important to get there is what Jesus does not mean by that is deny the good life in order to just follow me into awful drudgery things. What he actually means is deny the lie that you think will give you life in order to embrace true living. Because think about what he says next. For anyone who finds his life anyone who lives for yourself, anyone who buys into the ethic of our culture and just cares about you, you will lose your life. You find your life, you'll lose it. But those who lose their lives for Christ's sake, those who get that they've been given everything by Jesus Christ and so actually live for God and live for others, they will find it. In other words, to live for yourself now, to follow the ethic of our world and suggestions of the false saviors who call on us to just live for you, means you'll actually lose your life. But if you know Jesus, if you know the love that God has given to you in Christ, and because of that, seek to bear the burdens of those around you, you will find that you are truly alive, looking forward to the day when you will be brought back with Christ. You see, that is the kind of community we, as the church, are actually saved to be. We are not just saved from something, but for something. We are saved by Jesus Christ to be a community that knows we are loved by the cross, but also are shaped and conformed to it. And see, what this means is that for some of us, and really for all of us, guys, we have to not try to hide how weak we are. We have to not come through these doors and think that we can't tell others about what we are going through. I know that what I'm saying here could seem as if it is hard for some of you to hear because what you are going through is so hard and difficult you can't imagine bearing someone else's pain as well. And that's fine. That's okay. But please don't come through these doors thinking you need to hide it and throw on a smile because you're in church. Guys, the church gathers because we are weak. We gather because we need Christ to give himself to us. And we need to be a community that's willing to expose that weakness. But that also means that for all of us here, we need to be a community that actually accepts that that weakness is here. That accepts the fact that people are hurting and they need you. And so we need to be willing to bear that pain on ourselves. To be a community then who knows so deeply what Christ has done for us. That the cross is not just something we look to to know that we are loved but that we believe it so fully that we aren't trying to hold on to our lives. We know we've been given it already, and so we're seeking to be willing to bear the pain and suffering of those who are around us. And we do it because of Christ, because of what he has done, because he went to the cross for us, and in so doing, he showed himself to be the true king, to be the true savior that we all need. As his people, may we believe that so fully, that we live like him and for him the rest of our lives. Amen, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you, Lord, that you so loved the world that you gave your only sons that ever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you that he is that Savior because of what he's done for us. He is that son because he's the son of suffering. And Father, may we know that so deeply that you would shape us to be people who then are conformed in his, into his image and live like him for the rest of our lives. I want to pray for our brothers and sisters right now, Lord, who need to be reminded of your love. May they know Jesus Christ. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord, who need, are actually scared to live for others. May we actually know what you've given us in Jesus so fully that we wouldn't be scared because we're not losing anything by living for others because we've already gained everything because of what you've given us in Jesus Christ. May we know that in Jesus' name, amen.